Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. I'm Erwin Chemerinsky, the Dean of the Law School at the University of California, Irvine. I'm here with John Faskubik, who's the editor in charge of legal affairs for Reuters on leave this year, a correspondent for CNN, and I think most important, a visiting professor of law here at University of California, Irvine School of Law. Well, on February 13th, Justice Antonin Scalia passed away. After November 8th, we know that Chief Judge Merrick Garland isn't going to ever occupy his seat on the Supreme Court. We're waiting to hear who President-elect Donald Trump is going to pick to replace Justice Scalia. So I think the obvious place to begin the conversation is, what's replacing Justice Scalia with another Republican nominee on the court likely to mean? There'll be lots of variation, Irwin, and it's good to be here with you to discuss this momentous time. You know, when we had the nomination of Merrick Garland pending, it was so clear to see the difference between uh, a Republican Scalia conservative and uh, someone, a Democratic appointee like Merrick Garland. And some people might think there might not be too much difference with this new appointee of Republican Donald Trump. But I think there could be because Justice Scalia was so distinctive in his approach to the law. Sure, he was already conservative, offering the court the fifth vote against abortion rights, against affirmative action in cases, uh, also to establish a right to uh, individual gun ownership. He was somebody who um, tipped this court conservative in very meaningful ways. But he was more than that. He became a real standard bearer for originalism, a very conservative approach to the Constitution, saying it should be interpreted the way the framers in the 18th century wanted it. But then there were some other ways that he broke away from traditional conservatism. For example, he formed an alliance with uh, liberal justices on certain criminal cases uh, to enhance uh, a defendant's ability to confront witnesses against him and to uh, give greater protection for the right to juries. So uh, in some of those cases, he was uh, 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 the big conservative ones. He was an important standard bearer for the right wing. And that kind of thing will probably continue with a fifth conservative justice. I did mention abortion rights and that he was somebody who was very much against them, but uh, he did not prevail most recently in that because of uh, Anthony Kennedy, a conservative who would go over with uh, justices on the liberal side. So uh, in many cases, Erwin, it will be a wash. But we don't know. uh, All conservatives are not created equal. And Donald Trump has put out a list of 21 individuals. It will depend on who is chosen and what variations of conservatism that person subscribes to. So if I understand what you're saying, and I certainly agree, replacing Justice Scalia with another conservative, to a large extent, restores the ideological balance of the court, what it was before February 13th. It's possible that who President-elect Trump picks could be more conservative than Justice Scalia in some areas. You mentioned the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment, the right to jury trial of the Sixth Amendment. Much in the news in the last week is that Justice Scalia was the fifth vote to hold that flag burning is protected by the First Amendment. Justice Scalia was a consistent vote against constitutional limits on punitive damages. So it could be a conservative in all the areas where Justice Scalia was conservative and somebody more conservative in these areas. And that's certainly possible. I think it's also important to note 
from the more liberal perspective, the loss in terms of opportunity. Had Justice Scalia been replaced by Merrick Garland or another Democratic nominee, there then could have been five votes to reconsider Citizens United with regard to campaign finance. There could have been five votes to reconsider District Columbia versus Heller that you allude to with regard to the Second Amendment. But now that opportunity is gone. Now we really will, in most areas, be back to where we were before February 13th. What if President-elect Trump picks among the most conservative on that list of 21? Somebody like William Pryor from the 11th Circuit, who has said abortion rights are an abomination, and that's a quote, who seems to be every bit as conservative as Scalia or more so. There's even a rumor circulating that Ted Cruz could be somebody who'd be picked. And that might be a politically astute move by Donald Trump. It would take a rival for 2020, a critic, out of that possibility. Um, what do the Democrats do then? Well, I think the Democrats will have to assess what kind of conservative is sitting before them. Is it going to be someone who will be more in the mode of Scalia? And uh, for example, on the farther right, uh, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito? Or would it be someone more like Anthony Kennedy, who established uh, a key, who was a key vote for uh, gay marriage and other gay rights? And as I said earlier, was somebody who tipped the court enough to preserve abortion rights overall? So that's the first thing, is the Democrats will have to figure out, and I don't think that who they have, and I don't think that's an easy task. That's why the hearings and the review process will be so important. I think if the if President-elect Donald Trump puts up someone like Judge Pryor, I think you're going to see a battle royale. If he goes with someone who possibly whose record is not as known or who appears more moderate, there probably will be serious review, maybe even some delay in a confirmation process, but ultimately uh, approval. The this one place I think I might disagree is I think if the Democrats want to block somebody, they can't wait till after the hearings to do so. Where either party has been successful in blocking somebody, it's because they set out that position from the very beginning. It was the moment that Robert Bork got nominated that Edward Kennedy said in a very famous speech he would return us back to back alley abortions and set back progress. Um, it was from the moment that Justice Scalia died that Republicans in the Senate said, we're not going to hold hearings, we're not going to hold a vote on anybody. I compare that to Clarence Thomas, where the Democrats didn't come out nearly so early, and they weren't able to get the votes. Let me focus on your comment, though, of the battle royale. Will the Democrats filibuster? There were 48 votes against Clarence Thomas, and they didn't filibuster. There were 42 votes against Samuel Alito, and they didn't filibuster. Will they filibuster now, especially having seen how the Republicans treated Garland? Um, or are they afraid that if they filibuster, the Senate Republicans would change the rules to eliminate the filibuster, as the Democrats did for lower federal court judges and cabinet officials? Assume it's the most conservative. Assume it's William Pryor. What does battle royale mean in that context? I think in that case, the Democrats seriously consider a filibuster. And uh, I do agree with you, actually, that they have to lay the groundwork early. Uh, both sides are going to consider this a major battle, and you can't just wait till the end. And I, I, I agree with you that uh, he who hesitates <laughs> is lost. And I think that the Democrats right now are preparing binders on these individuals the same way uh, Donald Trump's people are, to figure out what's worth fighting and what's not, and what is the public persona and battle that will be waged. 
when President Obama chose Merrick Garland, he chose someone who was a moderate, who had a sterling reputation, and who he thought would get consensus. But Merrick Garland's name simply did not energize the public and did not put pressure on Republican senators to hold a vote. He was named by President Obama on March 16th, and here we are at the end of December without any kind of action and with no real political consequences for the Republicans who stalled. So I think, Erwin, that a lot will depend on whether the, how the public responds to the individual who is nominated. And that, of course, is likely to depend on how each political party presents the nominee. And uh, there's no way to know without having in mind who that person is. I think with regard to someone like a William Pryor or a Ted Cruz, the Democrats will come out right from the beginning and say, this is somebody at the far right. And the underlying question then is, and there's no way to know, we're speaking on December 5th, is Donald Trump going to pick somebody like he's done for Attorney General in Jeff Sessions, or he's now done for Housing and Development with Ben Carson, picking somebody who will really please the right. And often Republican presidents have wanted to give judicial nominations to the right. Or is he going to pick somebody who's much less well-known from his list of 21, and there are people on that list who we've never heard of, and make it much harder for the Democrats to have an opposition? And it's all in the context, too, that I think any Republican president would have the motto, no more David Suiters not wanting to pick somebody who could turn out to be a liberal or even no more Anthony Kennedys. Well, I think that President-elect Trump, Trump can actually accomplish uh, both. He can pick someone who isn't well-known to the public, but who advocates in the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation know to be consistent conservatives. For example, uh, the names of uh, Michigan Supreme Court Justice Joan Larson Larson and Seventh Circuit Justice Diane Sykes and Tenth Circuit uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch aren't well known to the public, but those are people who have been embraced by many on the right as potential uh, successors to Justice Scalia. And in fact, the list of 21 that Donald Trump put out as a presidential uh, uh, campaigner was provided by those people. Uh, so I think that he could have it both ways, frankly. And I think those three names would be ones that would please the right. It would be harder for Democrats to mobilize against compared to prior, because at least at this point, we've heard less of the inflammatory statements from those individuals than we have from, say, a prior, obviously from Cruz. But I know all three of them, and they're all very conservative individuals. What about future vacancies. As we've been focusing on the vacancy caused by Justice Scalia's death. Since 1960, 78 years old is the average age which Supreme Court justice left the bench. There's three justices who are 78 or older. Um, since you were the maven with regard to birth dates, I want to be sure I've got it right, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg turned 83 on March 16th, Anthony Kennedy turned 80 on July 23rd, and Stephen Breyer turned 78 on August 15th. What happens if one of those three justices leave the court? And I guess none of us can know how likely is it that all three of them can remain until the end of the Trump presidency. That's right. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg will turn 84 on March 15th. And I she's wrong by a day. I, I hate to do that to you, Erwin, but you know I've got that memory for dates. But but you were, you're exactly right about her age. She's about to turn 84. Kennedy's about to turn 81 next summer. And uh, Stephen Breyer, 79. 
But who knows in terms of the health? Now, Justice John Paul Stevens made it to age 90, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg has told me that she's aspiring to that also. Uh, but who knows? Who knows? Who You know, so many people were caught off guard when the 79-year-old Antonin Scalia died on February 13th, and we just can't predict what's going to happen. But your point is well taken because all Donald Trump needs is another conservative to have a cushion for the most far-right kind of rulings. And he has said publicly that he would like to see abortion rights overturned. And he's not going to be able to do that if he just has five conservatives on the court. He'll need a sixth. If he gets to, if Donald Trump gets to replace Ginsburg or Kennedy or Breyer, are there five votes to overrule Roe versus Wade? There would appear just on paper, given where Chief Justice John Roberts has been, where Samuel Alito has been, and Clarence Thomas. But when justices get to that key moment, sometimes they flinch. And Roe v. Wade has been with America since 1973. It is so entrenched in society that I have always believed that the Republicans on the Supreme Court and Republicans who rule the country who say they oppose abortion rights really wouldn't want it overturned because it would so change society and it would give the Democrats the best political tool to build up their party again. I'm more pessimistic than you are on this. I think there are certain issues where John Roberts and Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito are true believers. And I think abortion, affirmative action, marriage equality are among them. You only have to read Robert's dissent in the marriage equality case, Oberfeld versus Hodges. And I understand he read the dissent from the bench, which was the first time he had read a dissent from the bench, to see how deeply he cares about that issue. I think affirmative action is that way, is reflected in an opinion he wrote in Parents Involved in Community Schools in 2007. And I think abortion is that way for Roberts. And I have no doubt relative to Thomas and Alito, they'd be votes. So those three plus two Trump nominees, assuming there are two Trump nominees, I think are five votes to overrule Roe, overrule allowing affirmative action, maybe even overrule marriage equality. Uh, we'll, hopefully we won't see. Um, one of the other things that's gotten almost no media attention that may be worth talking about now is the Solicitor General. That the Solicitor General is such an important position in terms of influence in the Supreme Court. Do you have any sense of what it's likely to mean to have a Trump Solicitor General? Well, one thing we could do is look back and see when Ronald Reagan came in in 1981 and tried to transform a lot of the law with his Solicitors General. First, a man by the name of Rex Lee and then Charles Freed urging them to take very um, hardline conservative positions against abortion rights, against affirmative action. And at one point, uh, Rex Lee, who was his first solicitor general, even bristled at what the Reagan administration wanted him to do before the justices as the administration's top lawyer before the court and said, I'm the solicitor general, not the pamphleteer general. So there can be a lot of tension between a president and his uh, main representative before the justices because that's where a lot of the arguments on these key issues are made. Uh, there are several names in the mix, as I understand it, and uh, we've already seen his choices for attorney general be far to the right. We saw his choice for White House counsel, a, Dan by, a man by the name of Don McGahn, also be a strong conservative and longtime Trump uh, 
lawyer. So I think we will also see somebody who embraces the kind of conservatism that we've come to identify with Donald Trump. It'll also be interesting to see if he picks a solicitor general who has the respect of the justices. The thing about Rex Lee or Charles Freed or Ted Olson, who was the Bush solicitor general, those all were individuals with impeccable credentials and who certainly would have the respect of the justices. Will Donald Trump pick a conservative who has great experience before the Supreme Court, or will not, that not be? Will it be much more of a political appointee? I think he's looking at individuals who have argued many times before the court. The kinds of names that have been circulating uh, are people who the justices know and would probably trust, frankly, in some cases. But the question then becomes, what kinds of positions will those individuals be asserting on behalf of a Trump administration? And will they go so far as what you just predicted, that he would push for Roe v. Wade from 1973 to be completely overturned? Which, of course, the Reagan and first Bush administration did in their briefs to the court. And in fact, it was John Roberts, his deputy solicitor general, who played a role with regard to the brief in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That's right. And so it would be interesting to see how far to the right the Solicitor General is going to be. And what might it mean for some of the cases on the docket for this term? I think of a case, Gloucester County versus GG, which is going to be one of the high-profile cases of the term involving whether or not, with regard to transgender bathrooms, the discrimination on gender identity is a form of sex discrimination under Title IX of the Civil Rights Act. The Obama administration has taken the position through the Justice Department and the Department of Education that discriminating against transgender students is gender discrimination. Will the Trump administration come in and take a very different position after January 20th? Possibly. I would think so. I would think the uh, Trump administration is going to take different positions in many areas. And I think that's why it's important to recall that the Solicitor General of the United States has often been referred to as the 10th justice for good reason, because that's a very forceful place to make new arguments. Now, the position that the Obama administration was taking relative to the transgender bathrooms arose from a Department of Education policy. So what Donald Trump would have to do is get his administration to change the policy. That's one one approach, which would essentially make the case go away because then it wouldn't uh, there'd be nothing for the um, the challengers to be opposing because the administration would have stopped it. But we're going to see that in the area of immigration also. We're likely to see it in uh, provisions of the Affordable Care Act, for example, regarding the mandate on employers to provide birth control coverage for their employees. So there are many areas where Donald Trump will be affecting what happens at the Supreme Court even before a case is there or while a case is pending, but in the administrative realm. I think it's a great point. And it's also worth thinking about this term of the court as we're speaking on December 5th. At least when I checked this morning, they had not yet released a January argument calendar, which, at least by my recollection, is unusual to be in early December. We don't know January arguments. Um, there were three cases where review was granted in early January 2016 that have not yet been scheduled for argument. One involves the takings clause, Murr versus Wisconsin, one involves whether or not a state can deny aid to parochial schools that it gives to public schools and secular schools, the Trinity Lutheran of Columbia, Missouri versus Pauley case. And one involves an issue of federal court procedure, Microsoft versus Baker. 
my instinct is they've been waiting to schedule those cases with the hope that there'd be a ninth justice. What are they going to do now when it doesn't seem like we're going to have a ninth justice at all, maybe this term, or at least not until, or at least I think April arguments? Well, that's a real quandary. And I'm glad that you noted when those cases were granted cert, and it was in January 2016, before Justice Scalia passed away. And clearly, Given what those cases were all about, he gave the court the fourth vote to say, we want to hear these. And without him there and without a clear-cut resolution and majority either way, I think there, there's a bit of a buyer's remorse on the part of the court. And they, they have a couple options. They, can eventually, they could dismiss the cases as improvidently granted, or they could just keep waiting and hold it over for argument uh, in the future. It's also worth noting that the docket at this point seems very small for this term. It's hard to do an exact count because of cases sometimes being consolidated. My, by my unofficial count, I get 49 cases on the docket this term. Last year, they decided 63, which I think was the lowest since like 1932. The year before that, it was 66. The year before that, it was 73 cases. By my count, they have only three more conferences in which they could realistically take cases to be heard this term. So it also seems having only eight justices is really having an effect on how many cases they're taking. This is a term that, for all measures, will have a little asterisk attached to it, only eight justices. And, of course, there's also the real possibility of deadlock in a number of the cases that have been argued. Certainly, having read the transcript of oral arguments in many of the cases, it seems there could be many where it is 4-4, which means the lower court is affirmed by an even divided court, or they could do what you suggested when they're split 4-4, four four, put the case over for re-argument next term, assuming there's a ninth justice. We saw them, in many cases last term, decide issues as narrowly as possible. Chief Justice John Roberts would prefer not to have 4-4 deadlocks, but there's only so much he can do and some of the others can do to reach a resolution. And I think that, uh, again, this is a term that will be so unlike any other because it was essentially an eight-justice court. So if there's any theme to our conversation, I think it's about uncertainty. It's the uncertainty of who's going to replace Justice Scalia and how the Democrats are going to respond to that nomination. It's a longer-term uncertainty about whether or not there's going to be an additional vacancy for President-elect Trump to fill. We're uncertain at this moment of who's going to be the Solicitor General, uncertain even as to what's going to happen to a lot of the case on the docket this term, what the docket's going to look like for this term. So I guess my hope is that we can do this again after Justice Scalia's replacement is picked and after we have a better sense of the docket and be able to talk about it with a lot more information. But the uncertainty we have is the information everyone in society has right now. Yes, watch this space. Thank you so much. Thanks, Erwin. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.